Welcome to Step Into the Gray, Team Rubicon's official podcast. Each episode, we bring in guests to better understand our organization's culture and principles, and along the way, share a few laughs. My guest on this episode is Essen Zafar, and while he may sound like he's from SoCal, his roots lie far from Los Angeles. As a civil rights attorney, he has sought out the difficult places in society and made things better. Essen has brought his expertise in inequality to Team Rubicon's Board of Advisors, helping us to understand and support diversity as we respond to disasters. Essen Zafar, thank you very much for coming on to Step Into the Gray. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a little while. But I think before we kind of get into any of the meat and potatoes of what we wanted to talk about today, I really wanted to hear about who you are, your background, and then what brought you to Team Rubicon. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. I've been uh, waiting patiently uh, that somebody would invite me to step <laughs> in the gray. Love the name. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Podcast. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a guy with a, a little bit of a funny name. Uh, I'm on the board of advisors of Team Rubicon, uh, joined uh, but almost three years ago. Uh, I'd say two and a half years ago. Right. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Uh, nobody's perfect. Well, you know. Yeah. What can we do? Um, <laughs> sometimes they need, sometimes, you know, people, you don't need a lawyer. What's the saying? You don't need a lawyer until... Uh, or you, you don't need, like your lawyer until you need. So you need right? a lawyer, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think it goes with a lot of trades, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer by training. I grew up overseas. I was a refugee to the U.S. Um, during the first Gulf War, um, and uh, you, that really kind of started me down the path of you know kind of thinking about and appreciating the armed forces, um. And the work that they do because they, you know, they helped essentially save, uh, save my life and the life of my, uh, loved ones, uh, ended up in the, in the U S. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, went to UCLA, go Bruins. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, and then when, um, I was in law school, hurricane Katrina hit and uh day after the hurricane hit, uh, you know, I'd always been involved in kind of, um, volunteer work um, and kind of helping out on issues. And I felt that I needed to go and, and help out there uh, because much like we're experiencing now, it was a, it was out of step with what you expect uh, a national a national American response to a disaster. Um, and that was my first experience with something at that scale. And, um, um, and so I left and I did, um, you know, I, I, while I was there, we were just doing labor you know, just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, uh, and I was working with a number of organizations and a few friends there and eventually, uh, folks had legal questions and what they would do, what the other volunteers would do is they would, they would say, well, talk to this guy, Essen. um, he can answer your legal questions. He's a lawyer. Thing was, I wasn't a lawyer. I was a law student <laughs> and it's against the law actually to, um, to practice law. It's unauthorized practice of law. It's a, I think it's a felony. Um, in most states. So I, I was very happy not knowing. Uh, and ignorance of the law, by the way, is no defense. So I kept, 
kept committing a felony and um and and you know the one hour of legal advice turned to 12 hours and i effectively started along with a, a few other real lawyers a legal clinic in biloxi mississippi for those who had issues dealing with the the, the disaster with the hurricane mm-hmm. um and that could be things like being overcharged uh, by um by the uh by the uh hotels in the nearby area or funeral homes or insurance scams, all kinds of stuff. When I came back to LA, I realized that Los Angeles, which is where TR is based, um, had many of the same issues as a post-disaster environment. Wow. Um, In other words, people living in parts of Los Angeles were living as if they were living in a post-disaster environment uh, in terms of access to care, economic resources, uh, lack of services, um, and the thing that I was the most familiar with was legal services. And it, it, it was the same situation. People in Biloxi, Mississippi, two weeks after the hurricane, had the same legal issues and questions to, to, the, to, to a great extent that people in parts of Los Angeles did. And they couldn't get to. The problem with disaster is the mobility is limited. Right. And so they couldn't get to, to downtown L.A. If you're living, if you're familiar with L.A., if you're living in, you know, in, 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 in L.A. or parts of the surrounding counties, Getting to downtown LA to have access to limited free legal care is an impossibility when you're working full-time jobs and you have kids and maybe you're working two jobs right? because you're lower income. So my thing was like, why, why should they come to the inner city law center for a 30 minute consultation, which will cost them, you know, lots of money right? and they don't have the time. We should go to them. So I created a mobile legal aid clinic. It was a law firm on wheels. Wow. Um, and we would go to these communities and we would go to churches, uh, synagogues, mosques, uh, community centers, food banks, uh, clinics in these areas. And we would, uh, we were financed by a number of uh, companies. We would provide free to low cost legal care and all kinds of other services too. Ran that for a little bit, then worked um, on President Obama's campaign, then ended up working during his administration in um, D.C., um, Taught a few classes while I was there, um, and uh, and uh, we'll be transitioning out of there soon, um, and uh, and uh, looking forward to that new transition. So that, I guess that's a little bit about me. But feel free to ask other questions. You know, so where did you grow up then? So you said you're a refugee, and I, I think right. this matters. But where did you grow up? So I grew up uh, for the most part in Kuwait. Um, um, I, I wasn't born there, but I went, came there when I was really, really young. My father's family had grown up. My father had grown up there, um, and it, my grandfather had grown up there. My grandfather was in the Royal Air Force mm-hmm. served during uh, – uh, uh, I don't know if he served if he was too young. I think I don't, he may have been too young um, or too old, sorry, for World War II, but he definitely served in World War I. Mm-hmm. Um and um, uh, any any and then he after the war he transitioned to Kuwait in the 30s and 40s when oil was discovered he was an engineer um, by training so he grew up there my dad grew up there and then I grew up there for a little bit mm-hmm. and, you know Kuwait um, up until the Persian Gulf War um, Kuwait was like you know Orange County right uh, you know very um, very Orange Countyish lots of malls <laughs> very cosmopolitan. Lots of uh, Ferraris, and so it was a complete shock when, um, on August second, nineteen ninety, 
believe that was the date yeah. um, that, um, you know, Saddam Hussein uh, invaded the country. In fact, we were headed, my family was, we had a plane ticket for on August 12th, that same year to mm. permanently leave Kuwait and come, come to LA. Cause we had family here from the, you know, sixties, fifties and sixties. And we were just going to just, my dad was just going to transition over to LA. He had a job and everything lined up. So, uh, but you know, the first thing he bombed, Saddam Hussein, the first thing his forces, uh, uh, bombed was the, uh, was the, uh, airport. Right. Um, limited mobility. Correct. Um, so I have a huge, uh, I you know, I can go on about, uh, living there, but we were there, uh, I was there in Kuwait for, through most of operation, operation, uh, was it desert shield that came first? I believe desert shield, there. desert storm. Yeah. Yeah. So we left before storm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and leaving was not easy, you know, so we yeah. had to find random ways to get out of the country. We failed four times and then eventually we were smuggled underneath, uh, the floor of a bus wow. through, through Iraq all the mm-hmm. way through, uh, through, uh, Baghdad to the no man's land, Jordan, mm-hmm. between Jordan and Iraq, where we were left for a while, long story. And then yeah. we another camp in, in Amman, Jordan, and then on and on and on. So, but eventually made it, to to good old LA. All right. And, and so growing up, I mean, you had, so how old were you when you got into the United States? It's about nine. Okay. Nine, ten, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then now you're, now you're in a completely, albeit maybe sort of familiar because being in LA, uh, but still, I mean, language is different. A lot of the cultural norms were different. And, you know, here you went through this, this big event. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's a traumatic event. That's a big deal. That's, that's not something that m- many of us, uh, experience and you get into California. What was that like? I, I'm really thinking just, you know, until you got into college, it's just such yeah. a, a different departure from your normal. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it was a, well, parts of it wasn't, weren't a culture shock, right? Because I said Kuwait was like OC, right. I went to a British, uh, went to British Academy, but um, all that went out the window for a year or so, um, you know, when the war started. Right. That was a totally different reality. And unlike in Kuwait, where we were, you know, we were fine. We were upper middle class or whatever. In L.A., we were we were dirt poor. You mm-hmm. know, so I we subsisted on welfare for quite a while. So I remember going to the grocery store and using food stamps. And they were called food stamps at the time. Um, you know, we I actually wrote to the mayor of the small LA suburban city that I lived in saying, um, you know, that we don't have enough, uh, my parents don't have enough money to buy me a jacket. And then she wrote me back and she sent me a check for 50 bucks to buy a jacket. And I think like CBS (laughs) news picked up the story. CBS LA did this whole, um, thing about refugees living in, in LA and how they don't have enough. And my mom was completely embarrassed because they sent a TV crew over I was excited because I was like a TV star and I was like, Heck 10 yeah, old. yeah. 10 years old. Got, that's a big deal. And, and, and here's the thing, right? So then we got a lot of, this is the, this was the, the, I'm going to talk about the dark side of moving uh, to um, LA or us, but the bright side was that we got tons and tons of like, I mean, it, my mother was embarrassed, but we got tons and tons of like donations and toys and food. And, and um, you know, my, my parents, by that time, my dad had a job you know, well below his education level, but he had, you know, he was working at Target as a, as a clerk, but, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, um, um, but 
and he had to go back to school to, to get his uh, doctorate again, but he, um, you know, he had a job, but we, but, but the community kind of came out and helped out. And the, the generosity was, um, one of the things I remember the most. And one of the things that's motivated my career in public service, to be honest, but at the same time, there was a lot of discrimination. Um, you know, my last name wasn't always, uh, Zafar. Mm-hmm. My last name was Hussein. Okay. And my dad had to change that name because of the, the, around that time, you know, the Gulf War was still going on and everybody back home or here in the States, like, you know, especially in a more suburban area, understood Hussein to be the bad guy. Right. Of course, I agreed with them because I, mm-hmm. like my life had been turned upside down because of the bad guy. Right. But just because I had the same last name didn't mean I was related to him, mm-hmm. you know, at all. I mean, it's a very common last name, as you know, since you served there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to, my dad changed my last name to yeah. avoid, you know, attacks and discrimination, and our car was torched. Ugh. Now, again, back to the positive part. Eighteen years later, we elected Barack Hussein Obama. Right. You know, so we've come, we've come pretty far, right, uh, to be able to do that. But, but there's still, as we can see today in in the country, there's still ways, a long ways to go in terms of. Uh, equity and inclusion and, and uh, getting rid of racism. Well, and, and equity, inequity, those, those terms are, are, are really a reason why I brought you, you know, on the show, because I felt like this is a I, I challenge. I thought it was my podcast, Mike. Uh, well, it was. I mean, your, it, your, your podcast, Unfair Nation, which I will definitely give a plug here for Unfair Nation. It's a fantastic look, very introspective look about subject matters that I, th- I think are very pertinent, very timely, that are are talking about things that are hard, uh, talking about race, inequity, uh, equality, uh, representation. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, talking about kindness to people who think, believe, look different from you. Those are really uncomfortable things. They're not easy. Those aren't conversations that you skip down the block to have with your neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. But I think they're necessary. And I think, it, you know, I, I pride myself on the fact that I've been a part of TR for quite a while. And I feel like from my optic, and it's a different optic for everybody, but from my optic, I see this as a place of opportunity and transparency. And so having this conversation with you is a part of that transparency where there's no reason that we can't have these conversations, be civil, learn something about each other, about uh, the differences of who we are as a country, as a nation. And those, those differences are actually our strengths. They make us better. And yeah. I, 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 right. I, I, you know, when we talk about inequity, it, it's, it's, it's challenging for me because it's like, but I, I think everybody ought to get a shot. You want to work hard? You want to earn respect? You want to build reputation? Everybody ought to have a shot at that. But again, it's my optic. And, and I think that, you know, when you talk about the good things of what you experienced when you came to this country, and then you, the dark things, the, the labels, which, you know, having a son and, and trying very hard to keep a label maker out of his hands where he can go in and label people that he meets from a very young age 
has been probably the most daunting task as a parent. And I, and I think now, especially when we're talking about the, the death of, of George Floyd and the, uh, the incredible outcry of frustration by a number of communities that are representative of who we are as a country, I, 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 it's time that we are comfortable bringing it up and not being afraid of the answers that we're going to give. And, and I, you and I talked about this last week when we had our, our quick phone call that I felt like I didn't have a voice in this. And I, I think I do have a voice, but it's got to be a voice where I'm willing to listen to what's being said to me on the other end. And, you know, I'm not representative of, of this nation as an individual. I'm just a part of it. And so I, it's interesting to me that the, the dark places or the dark things that happened to you as you transitioned from your life in the Middle East to a life in Los Angeles, while those similarities are there, the inequity and the biases and the labels, those are hard things to swallow as a kid. And how did that work for you as you, as you began to grow up in, into a group, a society? And how did that balance out for you as a young adult looking backwards at, at your heritage? And how does it, what does that feel like going forward? <laughs> yeah. I know, I just deep, gave you a That's a deep question. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, we could talk. I mean, now, you're, now we're really getting deep. I didn't I think we were going to go this deep, but uh, we're really stepping into the gray here. Absolutely. Um, but, um, you know, it's something I still struggle with. Identity is something I still struggle with. I, You know, you, like many immigrants, uh, you develop two identities. Mm. You have this identity, you know, where I'm talking to you now, and I sound like a bro from, like, Venice Beach. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have another identity, your immigrant identity, you know, where uh, you code switch, right? So if I'm talking to somebody, like, you know, my, I don't know, my grandparents aren't here or alive, but if I was... You know, my accent changes. Uh, mm. I'm South Asian for the most part. Uh, there's a little bit of Iranian in there. But, uh, you know, I might drop down to something like this. Mm -hmm. You know, and so it becomes totally different, which is kind of comedic, right, on its own. But, um, you know, the way you talk and the, what you say, it's a two different personalities, right? And the advantage of that, the disadvantage is that, that um, you, uh, you know, the disadvantage is that you're never, like, sure of yourself, in some ways, the advantage mm. is that you always have a different perspective and you're able to understand how different people think. And it's, I think it's helped me in my career, right? I'm, my, my career for the most part has been that of a civil rights lawyer um, who's focused on um, not just issues of racial justice, but economic injustice um, um, and political and social power. Inequality is really what I, what I think about and I study which includes issues of racism and race, but also includes things like economic justice, regardless of somebody's race um, or political power, irrespective of somebody's race. You talked about equity um, and equality, right? And these terms are kind of thrown about a lot and mm. you really want to look at both, you know, absolutely. You look at an organization like TR or any other organization, you want to look at issues of, you know, I, you and I can be equal, in terms of access to services, but if you are already far more powerful than me because of your race or because of your paycheck or because of both or something else, your gender, mm -hmm. um, it's not enough to be equal. Right. You know, because you already have a huge head start. 
So if we're living in a system, whether that system is your employer, your organization, your government, that system, it behooves that system to help out those that are extremely unequal for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I call that the plus one approach, right? So um, if you think of, let's take racism, for instance, if you think of racism as a negative one, right? It's a negative one situation. It's a bad right. thing. It's not just enough to get to zero, right? Because right. If, you, if you, if I apply, if I keep throwing zeros at a negative one problem, if I keep saying I'm not racist, fantastic. That's a neutral position. If I keep doing that, it'll still stay, it'll stay negative one. So I have to throw plus ones at that negative one problem to start moving it into positive range. And a plus one might look like something like, I'm not just not racist, I'm actively anti-racist, right? I'm taking steps. Whether that step is something like listening, that might be a step. Uh, Whether that step is, you know, advocating for something at, at your workplace or change in policy or, you know, whatever that is, but it's a plus one step. And you have to do plus one steps to get from negative one to a positive range. Is it adding zeros? I mean, I'm bad at math, but you keep throwing zeros at a negative one. It's always negative one. Correct. Always. Yeah. It doesn't ever yeah. change. And I think right. that, I think that's a really important thing to understand because I think sometimes, you know, we have this, I don't know, the, the whole idea of decorum these days is just completely, un, uh, it's almost a non-statement statement. Oh, we have decorum. And, and I would, I would call bullshit on that, that we don't have decorum these days that we're willing to, you know, I think decorum used to be that you at least had a filter or you had a pause before you would say certain things. It still may come out horribly or it still may come out, you know, with your true beliefs, but at least you had a pause and we don't pause anymore before we speak, especially when it's something that's, that's charged you know, and race, politics, whatever. Yeah, sometimes. and I think, and that, I think that's not just a problem with people who are, you know, ignorant or racist, but also people who are trying to fight racism, right? I mean, like, yeah. I think that it's important to provide, if you are somebody who's a f- advocate for justice, you know, like I, I think I am, mm-hmm. it's important to provide a space for people who are interested in learning or interested in listening. You have to give them some some space. You have to give them. Um, you know, an off ramp or um, an opportunity to learn without uh, prejudgment, right? Yeah, and right. so, I, I think um, one of the the more dangerous trends in our society, you know, certainly not as dangerous as what we're seeing on the streets in terms of police brutality or racism, but like, you know, concerning to me at least is the fact that um, we're not um, providing space for dialogue that we may disagree with. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that as a civil rights lawyer that makes this country fundamentally uh, different, um, and it's scary to me that this is going away, is that is the First Amendment freedom of speech. The, the idea in the United States has always been where in other countries, if I say something that may be considered blasphemous or offensive and may have government censorship here, as long as it's not, you know, violent or inciting violence or the other legal limitations, that the best response to bad speech or what we call hate speech, which mm-hmm. is not criminal, by the way, right. best response to hate speech is good speech. And the idea is that good speech will, you know, when paired against hate speech in the long run will win out. Um, and that, that that conflict and that dialogue is inherently good for us as a society. And so 
it is concerning to me that, you know, uh, a lot of people feel like they can't talk about things because um, what they say may may come off as ignorant. And it may come off as ignorant, but they're never going to learn if, if people never talk about um, what they see, you know, what, what they might perceive as racist or not racist, let's say. They never get the opportunity to share that in a safe space and then be gently, you know, um, you know, corrected for lack of a better word. I don't like right. that word, but you know, if that, if that engagement never happens, then we'll never, nothing will ever change. Well, I mean, it, it, it to me, speaking to another human being is, is very much like learning any skill and we'll just throw, you know, how to hit a baseball. I mean, you make more mistakes learning how to hit a baseball than, than, than you have fingers and toes and, and your neighbors have fingers and toes. It takes a while. And I think the same thing goes with how we talk to each other. It is an art to it. You just don't step in one day and and can get your point across clearly and concisely without stepping on yourself or stepping over something or omitting something. And I I think that the key thing, too, with free speech, when when you bring that up, is you can say whatever you want, but you are accountable for what you said. And, and that's the thing is I think these days people are very flippant throwing comments over their shoulder about something that they believe in or they see or they haven't seen or they've been told that this is truth. And then they respond in a way and it's like, well, you can say that, but you, you are going to, you're going to be held accountable to your right. words. And I, and I think that, you know, if you come at it from the guys and this is where I feel team Rubicon's really done a a fairly good job and this is just again from my optic that you know when we say something or somebody says something to me and i may disagree with it whether it's operationally tactically on what we're doing at that particular time wherever we are they're still coming at it from their best perspective they're coming at it wanting to do the very best in the situation they may not have all the information they need to formulate the best um, possibilities or the best options, but they're coming at it with their best and they genuinely want to do good. And I think that that's an expectation that we should all have, uh, when we go out on a a team Rubicon op is that we're trying our best here. You know, we're in a chaotic situation and we just want to do our best and your best and my best may not be the same, but it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to disagree. Uh, and it, it, I think we do a pretty good job about that. It's the harder stuff. <laughs> you know, it's where your personality comes in. It's where your personal beliefs or where you grew up or how you grew up start to come into play where we start shutting down. And that to me is, is hard. And as a, a person in the situation I'm in, whether it's doing this podcast or just living the best life that I can, I've learned that listening is it's a vital component to having this dialogue with whoever you're having it with, especially right now. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I'm going to reel it back a little bit to when, you know, when you joined team Rubicon two and a half years ago, I love this little story that you told me when we had our, our conversation a little while ago, where you, you basically, for lack of a better word, you called out Jake. Like, hey, what's up with the makeup of things and how can we make it better? And, I, you know, I think that that's a bold statement to, to make. 
And I'd love to hear that interaction from you. Like, how did you come to that space where it's time that I had a conversation? So I found out about TR through uh, USC, where I'm a visiting fellow on inequality uh, this year. And, um, you know, I was just curious. I, I'd always wanted to serve in the armed forces, and I wasn't able to for various reasons. I mean, I, the emphasis in my life was placed on earning <laughs> earning a you know wage, getting educated, and avoiding the fate uh, that I had as a child. You know, right. um, that's kind of you know everybody has their own kind of demons, and that's been one of one of mine. And um, and one of my regrets was not being able to serve. Um, like my father did and my, my grandfather did. And so I'd always look to kind of give back to an organization that was affiliated with the armed forces. Um, and this was a perfect fit for me, at least in my mind, mm-hmm. because I had a, a background in disaster relief and serving communities. Um, and this was vets doing disaster relief and serving communities. And I saw an opportunity for me to be relevant when I looked at the TR website um, which at the time and for the most part still today had a board that was almost exclusively white and almost exclusively old male. Um, um, and, I, you know, Jake um, and some of the others, Art and all the, the folks there um, have been trying uh, to recruit uh, a board that's more diverse. And, and um, in all fairness, it does take a lot. You know, the, yeah. the folks you recruit have to agree to serve on yeah. a board. Um, you know, um, especially the advisory functions, we're not compensated for our work. Obviously we do this as a community service because we believe in the organization. So you have to find people that are qualified, people that are willing to, to take time out. Um, and, and we have started moving in that direction. We have one other uh, person who's a person of color and she's, she's a woman uh, who's on the board of directors. Um, uh, you know, and so that was my kind of comment to, to Jake was, look, the board's not diverse. And at that time, the staff was not as diverse. Um, and the gray shirts weren't as diverse. This is, you know, a few years back. And the thinking was that TR draws from the armed forces, which is one of the most diverse organizations in the United States, which is a testament, right? To its, um, to its makeup, I mean, the armed forces is by by most averages about forty one to forty five percent people of color right. or mixed race. Um, you know, uh, increasingly more women are serving. Um, you know, the armed forces uh, have a lo- almost an equivalent uh, a matching percentage of service members who are um, identify as LGBTQ uh, and close to the national population. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, why can't the TR board, um, the gray shirts and the staff, at least come close to mimicking that, right? Like we shouldn't be 5, 4% or 5% in that direction. Um, and I was like, look, I, I'm willing to donate my time and m- my services to help out in that capacity. And since then, you know, TR started moving in that direction. My idea always was that we should be diverse, not only in who we are, so who serves, but also who we serve. Yes. Yeah. Right. So who we serve has, has to be diverse and who, who serves has to be diverse. And that kind of goes hand in hand, right? Um, and so, and not just diverse on race, but diverse on everything from the branch of the armed forces that you come from mm-hmm. uh, to um, 
to the skill set that you have, to the economic situation from which you arise, to your gender, uh, to, you know, to your national background, your racial background, uh, you know, all kinds of areas. Uh, we should be a diverse organization because we're serving a diverse country. Yes. You know? And so it's very important for us to mimic the country that we serve, just like the armed forces increasingly mimics the country that it serves. Well, and, I, and that's the thing that I that I enjoy about where we are today is it's all about possibility. You know, we can draw from our our membership, our leadership's uh, language backgrounds, their belief backgrounds, their traditions, and it just makes us better. And having a broader optic, having a much more open mind, knowing that you're going to work shoulder to shoulder with an awful lot of different people than you grew up with, than you worked with, than what has been in your circle or your social environment, uh, you know, throughout your life. And it just helps, uh, you know, any time we deploy, we learn something about ourselves about the communities that we serve, about where their needs are, because sometimes it's different. Uh, you know, a, a lesson that mm-hmm. that has been very profound to me uh, when I went to Puerto Rico in 2017, there were a lot of resources on the ground. There was a lot of motivation on the ground. And I remember, you know, we got into San Juan and it was absolutely a mess. There were so many NGOs tripping over each other in the capital that I was like, how are we going to make an impact here? And we couldn't. And so we left and we went to a completely different part of the island that was difficult to get to, that didn't have resources, that didn't have power, that didn't have running water. And we tried to do the best that we could. And we made an impact because there was nobody else making impacts on that side of the island. Yeah. Uh, even when I went back a few months later to, uh, help develop the roof rebuilding program that we had there, one of the biggest standouts to me was, first of all, there was a lot of pressure being brought to bear on us to do temporary, uh, shelter in place, like roofing, putting tarps on, which made no sense to myself or, or the other two individuals, Corey Eide and uh, Zach Brooks Miller, it's like, this makes no sense. Why would we do a cheap and temporary solution when we can yep. do better? Yep. And I remember sitting down with folks at FEMA who were trying their very best in a very challenging situation, both politically, socially, economically. How can we help? And all the while bringing to bear, we want you to do roofs, we want you, or we want you to do tarping that would make an impact. And I remember when it finally came down to it, we're going to put roofs on houses because keeping people in their homes is better for them than keeping them in a shelter or keeping them living in cramped conditions where multiple yep. families were living under the same mm-hmm. roof. And when we did that, we chose an area of the island that there were FEMA couldn't work because of the lack of understanding about immigration status. And I thought that was a very bold, brave move. But it also was an interesting move that FEMA ended up uh, supporting us in that by providing materials, uh, which was Mm. significant. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's where Team Rubicon has a strength where we can kind of work in those areas. 
using a, a color that we're all familiar with, but working in those gray areas to provide positive impact. And I think that when, when we're on the subject that we're on today here, which to me ends up being inequality, we have an opportunity as an organization to impact because we don't identify with a social status, with an economic status, with a racial status. We don't identify with politics. We don't identify with a lot of things. And you're right, the, the chance for us to diversify our how we look as an organization is our own. It is a destiny that we have on our own. And that's powerful to me uh, because it, you know, the, the wonderful makeup of, of who we are as a nation makes us better and makes us the place that we want to be. And I think the same thing goes with team Rubicon. And yeah. I, I love that you were brought in with a different optic and a different motivation to try and make that impact. Yeah. I mean, How's I think to, to, to like, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you no. off, but to yeah. take that, um, take what you were saying about you're not identified with, you know, all those, topic areas, I would say that there is one thing we are identified with, um, or rather we, but, but, but those who are vets are identified with, and that's service. Absolutely. You know, and service is a powerful identity to have because it is less about identity, um, you know, an identity element and more about an action element, something you do. Um, and, and, and the reason why that's important, especially right now is that, um, when you're identified with an action element, like you do something and that becomes part of your character or what you're known for, that generates trust. Mm -hmm. So um, when you're identified with service, it's e easy for people to trust you. And one of the things uh, that's, uh, that's a troubling thing that's happening in our country is that there's a decline of trust. There's a decline in, of trust in um, private institutions there's a decline in trust of the media. There's a decline in trust of the government. There's a decline in trust of academic institutions and academics and experts. There's a decline in trust of, you know, online uh, sources of information. Everywhere you go, trust is declining. And trust is what binds civilization together. There's a direct correlation between levels of trust and, you know, other elements that, that kind of we call a civilization, right? And mm -hmm. so the lower the trust goes, the more other kinds of problems happen. And trust is hard to define, and it's hard to raise. And so TR, the armed forces in general, but TR specifically because it works more with civilians, plays an exceptionally important role in helping us build back that trust in this country. And the work that we're doing on COVID, especially, mm, yes. um, is so important because we're helping build that trust. And you know, if we do it the right way, if we pay attention to not only who serves in terms of how diverse we are, but who we serve, uh, that's all we have to do, right? Because we're not a, a, a racial justice organization, right? I mean, that's no. not our that's not our mission. But no. if we do the work we're supposed to do, which is, you know, primarily disaster relief, but we do it with those precepts in mind. Um, we we may accomplish more tangentially, you know, just on just as an as as a side accomplishment uh, of organizations whose only job it is to do that because we're building off of a huge foundation of trust, and so if people see us do the good work in a good way, 
Um, that goes a long way. Um, and, and the other thing we can do, to be honest with you, is bring people in, right? Because we're trusted as an organization, um, you know, I, I may be somebody, you know, I'm a, I'm a person of color, can't see me mm -hmm. on this podcast. I sound like I'm a bro from, from Santa Monica, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm a brown bro from, from, uh, from LA. But, um, you know, I generally, I feel comfortable, but somebody else like me who's lower income perhaps or something like that may not feel comfortable going on an op, uh, but they may feel comfortable because it's vets going on an op, right? right? Uh, because that person may, he or she may know a lot of vets from their community, let's say they're Hispanic or something that served in the armed forces. So that automatically breaks a lot of barriers, right? Mm -hmm. It's so easy for us, even if let's say, I don't know what the stat is now, but even let's say, I'm just throwing this out in the air, let's say we're 90% um, uh, white gray shirts, which I know we're not, but let's say we were. Um, and I'm a Hispanic person trying to come in and serve, just because it's vets uh, that automatically engenders that trust for me to kind of come in and, and join the team, right? Um, and it's even easier if I'm a vet to begin with. Right. So the, the 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 platform that we have, the asset that we have, beyond the fact that we have all kinds of operational assets and organizational tendencies and assets, is that we're we come from a institution, an organization that already has some of the highest trust in the United States, uh, and we adopt that trust, and we can use that trust for a lot of good things beyond just not just disaster relief, but doing disaster relief in kind of the right way. And I think that's a great understanding too, because, you know, disaster response is what we do. Uh, and the makeup of our organization, whether that's the civilian component of our organization or the veteran component, they're still providing disaster response. That's a, you know, so there's no division. You know, when I, when I work with people that are, well, you know, I'm, 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 I wasn't a vet. I don't care. You're here. You're showing up. You know, you showed up today and you gave up the most valuable commodity we have humans have, and that's our time. You can't raise more time. And, and really, you know, it's something that, that has been very strong in my vernacular when I've talked about this on the podcast is that we're ultimately, when you distill down who we are and really look at that identity, we're humanitarians. That's it. We're just humanitarians. Absolutely we're, right. We're fans of human. We're we're incredibly passionate about helping humans, and in that process, we get helped. And so that's kind of what I liked about this conversation in particular, is we can help ourselves feel comfortable being a part of our communities yeah. as they go through this tough time, especially when it comes to racial inequality. And the other thing I would encourage too is like, not for an organizational perspective, because we have to kind of keep those lines clear as to what we mm -hmm. are as an organization. But if you're a gray shirt, you know, if I'm on an op and I'm thinking about these issues, uh, you know, um, I would encourage, at least personally, for us to think more broadly about what does, what a disaster is. Yes. Right. So did we think, were we thinking about COVID as a disaster six months ago? No, yeah. but we, we, we weren't even thinking about rebuilding two years ago. We weren't rebuilders, no. you know, then we started rebuilding because we're an agile organization. Now COVID's come along and we're starting to um, kind of respond to COVID this way. Um, and yes, these still have a lot of things in common with what we would consider a traditional disaster. But 
at least on a personal level, not on an organizational level, but on a personal level, I would encourage gray shirts to think more broadly about what a disaster is. You know, being poor in a community uh, that that uh, where you're one of the the poorest people in that community, that's a disaster. Yeah, for the twenty thousand people that are there, racism is a disaster mm-hmm. for the communities that are experiencing systemic racism. Um, and although we're not kind of deploying to deal with those, you know, quote, disasters, um, in the way that we deal with more traditional disasters, if we look at these other issues as as having an impact similar to, though different, from a natural disaster, uh, that can help us kind of respond better, right? That can help me as, as somebody on an op say, like, hey, maybe like X person should be the first person to knock on this door. Right. Right. Because um, uh, they're not going to scare the crap out of, uh, you know, the person opening the door or something like that or whatever this case may be. Right? Mm-hmm. They maybe look like them or, or maybe, you know, maybe. A, 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 and I know we do this already on a lot of ops. You know, maybe a woman should be the person who should be front and center um, uh, for rapport purposes or whatever the situation may be. Um, but if I think if we recontextualize what we think of as disasters, at least on a personal level, that can go a long way f- for us to kind of keep continuing to build that trust in different communities. And that'll make I, our job easier in our traditional kind of disaster response, right? Whether it's COVID or a rebuild or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, it's very, it's very interesting you bring that up because I think they're, you know, how, having a situational sensitivity as to what's happening here, uh, understanding who the community is made up of and who's the community that you're there to serve at that particular moment uh, is very important in having that sensitivity to, you know, I, I already feel like a, so many uh, gray shirts who, who make up this organization have such a humility about them and a quietness that they just want to go out and do really good work. Absolutely. Yep. It's one of but, the best parts about this organization are the volunteers. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And having that sense, that double down a sensitivity to the fact that I may not be the right person to go knock on this door and we, we have somebody else who could come in and have a better rapport because it is, it is effectual in what you're trying to do. Having rapport within a community that we're here to help is huge. It, you, it, you can't overstate how important that is having rapport within a community. And I, and I know that, you know, down in Houston during rebuild, there was initial challenges in developing that rapport. And we did a great job of extending our hands and opening our hearts up and, and really trying to put ourselves in the situation there that they were in and tried to make their day better and tried to make their situation better. And right. I, I, you know, the Houston rebuild has done that in spades. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that is more common that we you know over deliver more often than we don't and that does come from that on the ground awareness as to who we're serving and what's the best approach uh and i'm always proud of, of seeing great you know great work and and you know great uh stories about about those things in the field I think it leads me to something. If you have you have something to add to that, please, I want to hear it. No, the only small thing I was going to say is like you know, gray shirts already have a leg up, right? Because uh, for better or for worse, we you know many gray shirts have served overseas yeah. in communities that were radically different or substantially different from uh, where they grew up, 
right? Where people spoke a different language, had a different faith, had a different economic and, and physical environment. So we've already made some of those mistakes in terms of gray shirts if we needed to make any mistakes at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're coming back with that knowledge of, you know, how do you integrate, how do you do service in a community that may not be like you? You know, and, and obviously we have less differences here, but but still substantial ones. And so that's another asset that we have uh, as TR, right? That we've done a lot of the, we're not just kind of fresh off the, uh, for lack of a better word, fresh off the boat, so to speak, right? Which is the acronym that people use for me because sometimes <laughs> I still have some immigrant tendencies. Uh, but, you know, we're not like that, right? I mean, we've done, we've done this work for three or four years overseas in different countries. And so- mm-hmm. There is a level of uh, expertise already. Sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. I know you want to. No, I no. I think the question coming, so I'm ready for it. I think that's great, but really, what I'm looking for here too is I, I want to leave people who are listening to this with some tools uh, and and leave them with some opportunity. I, you know, when we spoke a, a while back about you know, I felt like I didn't have a voice in this, and and I came away from our conversation, knowing that I do have a voice in that and I can't, I have to be that plus one or more, right? And so I'm really looking for, as as gray shirts, we're going to interact with our communities, whether we're doing COVID response, medical response, disaster response, any one of the, the myriad of missions that we have capability underneath our belt at this point. But we're interacting with the public. We're interacting with people we don't necessarily know. But really when it comes down to inequity, when it comes down to racial divisions, when it comes down to those tools, you know, like myself, I didn't feel like I had a voice. And that plus one was a terrific example of trying to move that needle in a positive direction. What are some of the tools that we should be developing within ourselves to better serve our communities in our roles? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, and I can like write a book about this, but um, you know, the first thing I would say, number one, is what you said right at the beginning, which is to listen. Right? Doesn't cost you anything to listen, um, and you can keep open. You know, you can make yourself open to to divergent points of view. Second thing, number two, is to be be cognizant, watch yourself, and make sure you don't become defensive. You know. Um, Oftentimes, if you hear something from somebody who's experienced economic collapse and you happen to be wealthy, let's say, or somebody who's uh, been um, had a bad interaction with law enforcement because they were black and you happen to be white and you're hearing anger, a lot of times you have to realize it's not directed towards you. Don't take it personally, right? right? Yeah. yeah, and it's hard. I mean, I say that and it's very difficult. Oh, yeah. I'm not black, right? And so there's been many times where... Um, I have advocated on behalf of black people, but I'm not from that community. And although I am a person of color and an immigrant, I have I don't have the same experience, probably nothing close to the same experience that somebody who's black has had in 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 the United States. They have a very different experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some similarities with that experience, but it's not the same. And so I also I also put these strategies into kind of effect, right? So listening is important, not being defensive. Or working to not become defensive is important. Right. Third thing is ask. And here's where the part I was talking about earlier is like, it's up to you to ask, but it's up to um, the, maybe the communities that we serve or things like that to be 
ans- to be the in the answering mode, right, and not just to be in the shutdown mode. Um, but ask, right, and so, and sometimes in certain situations where the topic may be controversial or sensitive, that may be a courageous act to do some asking because you're a little afraid of the reaction that you'll get. But put yourself in the shoes of somebody else, right? Like, yes, it's a courageous act, but then somebody's experienced police brutality as well, you know, which right. requires an insane amount of courage, you know. So ask. And if you've done some good listening and you've been careful not to be defensive, you probably built a rapport with that community or with that person. And so asking becomes easier, you know. And then number four, I would um, I would share what you have learned through asking and listening with others and get some feedback before you kind of implement some kind of policy. Right. So get some feedback, include people um, of a similar background, you know, so if it's an issue you're dealing with where it's a gender issue, you know, you want to make sure you have other women on your team that are kind of sharing their perspectives Um, and then act. Act, and, a lot of, and then act, man. You got to act, right? Like we're, you know, veterans are good at acting, good at yes. doing, good at doing things. They are doers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and so if you, I think if you do those five things, I really didn't start out with this to be a five-step plan, but it's kind of come out to be a five-step plan. <laughs> I don't even remember all my steps, to be honest. It's simple, it's, but it's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Well, now I'm blushing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. Um, but um, and no, nobody can see me, so it's fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> You're uh, but but uh, so you, those are those are kind of easy ways to think about. And your role may be different, you know, where, depending on when you kind of your boots on the ground. You just landed. You're in listening mode. You're trying not to be defensive. You're asking some questions. Then you're moving on to some collaboration, you know, and then you're and then you're acting. But the goal is to not to act on some kind of assumptions, and we know what assuming does right for 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 us right it does it makes an ass out of you and me that's right for sure and there's been a part of the reason why some of these things are happening is because people of good intentions Hmm. have assumed things and um they're not bad people Mm -hmm. uh they have good intentions but um that doesn't mean that they can remain kind of ignorant right um so that's not an so we are living in a country in a time where ignorance is fast becoming uh, a non-excuse and it right. should not be an excuse. It doesn't take a lot of effort and time to educate yourself about this issue. We educate ourselves about all kinds of issues. Absolutely. You know, all kinds of dumb issues like, mm-hmm. you know, how to post the best Insta selfie. Yeah. Right. And so we're educated about that. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can take a few minutes to get educated about things like racial inequality um, economic inequality, and so on and so forth. You know, and it, and it brings me down to to something that is has been very important to me. I think specifically in the last probably three to five years is, you know, that kindness is is a commodity that it also doesn't cost us anything. And kindness it can be expressed in a myriad of different ways, but I think if you put that in the forefront or maybe the lens that you're looking through that you're going to go into it with some kindness it, it can diffuse things it can open people up um, you know it's something that that is also a common thread uh, specifically within this podcast is vulnerability and being vulnerable opening yourself up to that um, lends itself 
uh, to a lot of these five steps. And I, I like that, you know, we, we were given opportunities throughout our life to be educated. We're also given opportunities throughout our life to evolve. And I don't think you can stop evolving. You don't get to be mm -hmm. stuck and be like, well, I'm old. Well, mm -hmm. I'm this. Well, that's not how I grew up. And I think all of that is bullshit. There's no other way to claim that mm -hmm. is bullshit. You cannot be stuck because of your age and all the things, you know, your age, your race, your traditions, your beliefs, your length. None of that allows you to stop evolving. And, you know, that, that enlightened moment should be more of a regular thing than an uncommon thing. And uh, I, that's, I, and that's my big takeaway from your five. I think you should own those five. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to remember those five. Man. Pretty that's good for of, winging it. Huh? Pretty good for when I was winging it. I just got to, why? I just should have written those down. That was, that was pretty good. What I, I always, I'm always impressed by people who could do that, right? They're like, well, I have three steps you can, I mean, I'm always impressed because I never have three steps or four steps or whatever, but I guess I do now. These are good. And what, I'm, what, what always pleases me too, in, especially in these moments where we're talking about things that matter to us and, you know, inequality, it sucks. There's no way around it. It sucks. It, it sucks that it's there. It sucks that it happens. But these are five great ways to start breaking down that barrier that inequality puts up for us mm -hmm. and allows us to talk. We may not agree. We may not always see eye to eye, but we can't use excuses of the media and politics and, and all the other labels that we love sticking around on ourselves and other humans that we contact. But having that evolution of, of being able to have these moments of real human contact where we're just there to help matter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I, I don't, I don't, I think we could, we could go on for days, but I don't know that it's going to help anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like I will say, I guess in closing, right. Um, I, I, I'm a resource primarily to, to Jake and, and, and art and some of the folks on the C team, you know, that's who I'm meant to advise. But if you're a staff person listening to this, um, I've always made my information available. If you're a gray shirt listening to this, you know, you can um, contact me um, and just talk. I mean, I'm not, I'm not paid by team, team Rubicon. I get a paycheck. Uh, I don't work for Jake. Jake doesn't work for me. Um, um, I'm just, a, I'm here as a resource, you know, and if you want to talk about something that's happening, I'm happy to just talk things through with you. Uh, I understand Team Rubicon. I'm part of the team, but um, you know, if you just need somebody to to listen or you know give some kind of advice on some of the issues that I um, I'm um, uh, that I think about, you know, you, use me as a resource um, and um, sign up for my sign up for the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, it's unfair a great nation. podcast. Yeah, it's a Thank great you. podcast. I, I appreciate it. We try to discuss these heavy issues with a little bit of humor. Um, and a little bit of a lightness um, and not take ourselves too seriously. It's unfairnation.com. It's, you know, designed to be a little provocative. There's also a newsletter, which is a great way to stay in touch with me. Um, and I send it out on a weekly and a monthly basis. Um, so, you know, sign up for, the, for that as well um, on the website and, and stay in touch with me. 
know, I, I'm here for TR. This is the organization I have, I'm committed to, to working with and assisting in all of, all of the gray shirts. And I, I'm going to consider myself a gray shirt as well. So. Well, I Thanks definitely for having consider, me on. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely it. consider you a gray shirt. And as an, I really appreciate need to do more ops. I, I, need, yeah. to, I need to get on the ground more. Get a little dirty once in a while. Yeah, a little bit more for the soul. More. Absolutely. Yeah. But I appreciate your, your, your openness to this. I uh, appreciate also the, kind of the challenge that you laid before me. We had a conversation uh, before we scheduled this podcast that, that we can talk about these things and it, and it doesn't take away the fact that they may be uncomfortable, but I think under the spirit of trying to be better. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that there's not a gray shirt out there that doesn't want to be better when they're going right. out to serve communities. But in, a, in, in just that lens of wanting to be better, this is making us better. Being open to yep. conversations that aren't easy makes us yeah. better. And it doesn't need to be divisive. It doesn't need to be polarizing. It can bring us together in ways yeah. that are real. Yeah, I mean, like, look, the people talk about, like, why should there be peaceful protests? Why should I be peaceful? The reason why you want to have peaceful protests is because we're having conversations like this. Protests yeah. make it so that an issue cannot be ignored. Yep. That's what that's the power of a, of a of a mass movement of people. Throughout American history this has happened. Right? So they make it so an issue cannot be ignored whether it's I don't care what your political, you know, affiliation is. I mean the Tea Party movement was in many ways a protest, Occupy Wall Street was a protest, and they came from different kind of segments of society and they and they brought an attempt brought a topic to the fore. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, Michael, I appreciate you giving me space to talk about this. And I also want to give a shout out to Jake um, yeah, in particular, um, but also so many of the staff on TR. I mean, Art, um, you know, I think you mentioned Corey, some of the other folks. Mm -hmm. They, they especially after, after these uh, protests started in a difficult time, you know, in, in a time of COVID, they have been committed um, and not afraid of making a space for allowing staff and gray shirts to express how they feel, whether, you know, whatever that thought may be, um, and trying to integrate some of the lessons that are the reckoning that we're going through in this country, trying to integrate some of that uh, in an appropriate way into the organization. And so a uh, big shout out to them for being kind of forward leaning on this. Uh, it's an excellent, excellent topic just because we, we can't get better unless we, unless we do something about it. And if we can help our gray shirts be better gray shirts by being better humanitarians, better humans, more open to conversation, we've done nothing but help our communities by putting the best gray shirts on the ground to help out in a tough situation. Yep. And for that, I appreciate your time, of course. your enthusiasm and your energy. And, uh, uh, that's, that's all I got for you today. <laughs> uh, yeah, happy to be here and uh, look forward to to listening to the podcast. And uh, again, you know, anybody who's listening, if you're a TR, uh, gray shirt, your team member, holla back. this time of charged language, politics, and beliefs, Team Rubicon's calling has never wavered. Helping those communities that are in need of bold humanitarian action is our driving motivation. Doing so as a team makes us stronger and much more effective. Thanks for listening. <laughs>